Good morning, church. Go ahead and pull out your Bibles and your notes, something to take notes with. Um, pretty, pretty crazy opportunity to host this memorial service coming up. Please stop by uh, on your way out today. Uh, would love, if, I know it's a Monday. If you're able to come, it'd be great to have you here. There's also a need for a whole bunch of volunteers if you're able to jump in and help. We'd love to have your help there. All right, open up to Ephesians chapter 2. This morning, uh, I've got way too much to do, so we're just getting on the gas right away. And uh, I still have the motto, anything we're doing is worth overdoing. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to preach to you like you came to church hungry, and uh, I'm going to do my best to give you something here. All right, we are continuing our series that we started last week called We the Church. We are coming to the Bible to hear from God and have him teach us. We have all of our own maybe ideas, preferences, experiences, backgrounds about what the church is, who we are as the church. But we have a responsibility as Christians to come to the word of God and let God teach us and give us as Christians a good theology on what does he mean when he calls us the church. Last week, we talked about uh, the, the first the first biblical truth that we talked about is that we, the church, are his possession and this week we're doing, we, uh, we are doing the truth that we are his temple. His temple so is what you can write at the beginning of your page. Ephesians chapter 2, go ahead and stand up for the reading of the word of God. Where am I starting here? And before we read, quick shout out to Ephesians this year. I mean, two, serv- two sermons while I was gone. And back-to-back weeks, on my first two weeks back. So Ephesians making a strong case for MVP of 2022. (laughs) Starting in verse 19, got a few verses for you this morning. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence here this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you, to gather together, to partner with you in bringing dignity to people in this city, and now to hear from your word. We open up our hearts and our minds and our lives to you, Holy Spirit. Speak to us, teach us, train us, encourage us, rebuke us, reprove us, and equip us for all good works that we would be perfect for the things you've called us to, Lord Jesus. We expect to hear from you, and we come in submission under your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. We, the church, his temple, his temple, temple, interesting. We are going to have to do some work today, and, and I'm, that's a nicer way of saying, you need to do some work today. You need to do some work today to properly understand what God means when he teaches us that we are his temple. And the reason that you need to do work and I need to do work to understand what God means when he says that is because temples are not all that familiar to us in the world we live in and the brain space we're in. 
We understand things like churches or stadiums or office buildings or synagogues or cathedrals, things like that. But a temple, a temple is different. A temple is different than those things in a very specific and a very significant way. The places that we are familiar with are places that we primarily understand as places that we go because something happens there. We come to church or people go to synagogue or a cathedral or whatever. They, they go to a, a religious building because a religious service happens there or a religious gathering happens there. We go to a stadium for a game. We go to our office so we can do some work. But a temple is not somewhere you go because something happens there, but rather a place you go because someone lives there. The idea of a temple is not that you are going to an event space or that you are going to a place where something happens. The idea is that you are going to a dwelling place. You are going to a home, not an activity. That is the idea of temples and all religions and all ideas and in all places. The, the idea of the temple is that this, this thing or, or person or idea or a thing that we worship actually lives here. That's why we come here. We, the church, are not just a gathering of people. We aren't even just a gathering of people who believe the same way. We aren't an event organization or a social club. The Bible teaches us, God wants you to know that we, the church, are God's dwelling place. We are his home on this earth. We, the church, are his temple. Now, in preparing for this message, I had to pick between two things I wanted to do. I had to pick between using our time together to focus on the various ways and places that the Bible teaches us that we are God's temple, or I could spend our time overviewing the whole of Scripture so that we can better understand what it means that we are God's temple. So I chose the latter. Surprise, surprise, we're going to talk about the whole Bible. So the rest of our time, I'm just going to give you kind of an overview of where we're headed here. The rest of our time is going to be mainly spent doing an overview of the meta-narrative of Scripture. It's a fancy way of saying the big story. What's the big story of the Bible? We're doing that to help us understand that whether hearing that we are God's temple sounds like a big deal to you or not, God teaching us that we are God's temple is a huge deal to God. So what we want to do is set aside whatever my concept is or isn't of temple, and we are coming to the Lord to say, God, I believe this means a lot to you, so I want what you're telling me to mean to me what it means to you, regardless of what it means to me by myself. You teach me what you mean. So that's what we're going to spend the bulk of our time doing, and then at the end... Spoiler alert, I'm not really giving you that much practical stuff. That was what last week. Last week was super duper practical. It's enough to hopefully tide us over for a few weeks. No. It was super duper practical this week. I just want to end urging you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. So to understand what God means when he tells us that we are his temple, we've got to start at the beginning. 
And if anything's going to be part of the meta-narrative, it better start at the beginning, right? Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth aren't two separate boxes that we're supposed to think about where one is real, the earth, obviously, and then there's the heavens, which is sort of like the imaginary realm. The heavens and the earth are two different realms that are both very real. Both of them are very real parts of what composes all of reality, the spiritual realm and the natural realm. God created both, and they're both real. They are the two realms that are both created by God, both inhabited by God, both filled by God and his creation. And though they are different, they are not supposed to be separate. So there's a lot of big ideas in there. And we're not going to cover those this morning. But we did go more in depth on that during our series, Biblical Formation, last year. It started in January. If you want more on that, I'd encourage you to go check that stuff out. We're going fast today. So we got to skip over all that. Okay, so in the beginning, we get God creating the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, gives us this. That then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So we get the heavens and the earth, and then on earth we get Eden. Eden was not the whole earth. The whole earth wasn't Eden. Eden is a garden that God plants on God's earth, and then it's where God puts God's man that God's made. Now, we're going to shortcut a whole lot of study about ancient languages and cultures and just jump to the main point here, okay? The Garden of Eden wasn't primarily a pretty place for Adam. It was primarily a temple for God. When you get into language and all that stuff, what's clearly, what God has clearly done here is he has built himself a temple, a place for him to live. This is God's dwelling place on earth. It is the place of intersection between God's heavens and God's earth. And God creates man so that he can be placed in this garden temple. The Bible tells us to keep it and work it. Now, the takeaway from that is not that God made humans to be gardeners. The takeaway from that is that God made humans to be priests. Another way of saying it is that God made humanity to be his imager on earth. Let us make man in our own image. Again, we we talked about that a lot in a whole message last year in the biblical formation series, what does it mean to be human? If you want more on that, go check it out, but we got to keep moving for this morning. So I know this is already a lot, and I'm skipping a lot, but the point that we need to understand is simple. So if I've already lost you, come back here now. We we got a landing spot. (laughs) Follow me here. God did not create the earth for humanity and then decide that he wanted to create then something like religion so that people could go to church on Sundays. God created the earth and put humanity on it for the sake of God and humanity dwelling together. That's the point. That was the point from the beginning. That was the ideal. And it takes us all the way to Genesis chapter 3 before we break it. And the rest of the Bible after Genesis 3 is the unfolding of God keeping his promise that he makes to us in that brokenness. Not only to forgive our sins and get us to heaven someday, but indeed to redeem all of creation for his purposes. 
So in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and he commissions him as the person through whom God is going to raise up a chosen people as the vehicle for his redemptive plan for humanity and creation. Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This has a lot of correlation to the creation story in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God is establishing a place. I'm going to give you a land. He establishes a person that I want you to be fruitful and multiply and take my kingdom to the earth. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God hasn't changed his mind. God hasn't changed. God's still on his mission in the midst of all of the changes and breaking that we do. So Abram, Abram becomes Abraham. His descendants become Israel, God's chosen people to whom God has covenanted himself so that God can reveal himself to all people and bring all people to himself and to restore humanity as his imager on the earth to participate in his kingdom. Are we following? How are we doing? My kids are big on the like, eh, I'm like in here somewhere, you know. Okay, so that brings us to Genesis chapter 12. <laughs> to summarize the rest of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Israel rebels a bunch. They end up in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. God raises up Moses to bring them out of Egypt and bring them to the land that he had promised to Abraham. But the people are a huge pain in the butt to deal with, so they end up wandering in the desert for 40 years before they can start taking the land that God has promised them. But in the midst of all of that, God does not wait until they get to the land he promised them before he gives them his presence that he promised them. Along the way, he tells them to create for him a tabernacle. A tabernacle. It literally means residence. Or dwelling place. Make me a residence. Make me a dwelling place. Because they're wandering in a desert. This tabernacle is a tent. They build, a, they build God a house out of a tent. And his presence lives there. And this, this dwelling place, this tabernacle. But maybe more accurately to say, the very presence of God becomes the center of their entire society their culture, their laws, their lifestyles, their rhythms, where they come, where they go, when they come, when they go. Becomes the center of their government. The presence of God becomes the center of everything that they are. Okay. Keep jumping. A long time goes by. They do the desert thing. They do the tabernacle thing. They start going to the land. They start taking over land. A lot goes on. A lot happens. Where we're jumping to now, those desert nomads are no longer desert nomads. They have an established nation, and the tent won't do anymore. So Solomon, the king, builds God a massive, majestic, beautiful temple. No, no more tent. We're, we're talking 
real estate here. Big time, fancy, gorgeous building. By this point, it's been several thousand years since the garden. It's been a long and arduous road. But a people has been raised up. A plot of land has been ordained. A temple has been built. And when we get to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, this king blesses the people, prays this prayer of dedication. This place is now the temple of the living God. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the Lord responds to this temple, to this dedication, to this blessing, to this consecration. And I want you to pay close attention and listen to the Lord's response. We're going to read a lot of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 11 picks it up. Thus Solomon finished the house that the Lord, uh, the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among the people, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, and if you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you. And this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted... Everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus and this, thus to this land and to this house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. 
the temple, a house for God, a place on earth for people to meet with God. Again, the Lord has given it. And again, he warns them that if they turn, they will no longer be welcome in his house. So Solomon carries on and he starts off strong. He starts off faithful to the Lord. And because of that, the Lord is true to what he promised. He's he's faithful to Solomon. He blesses Solomon and the nations begin to flood to the temple and come to the presence of God. But then Solomon turns aside and forsakes God's statutes and commandments. His family line becomes an absolute mess. The nation of Israel goes through wars and civil wars and divisions. And eventually, instead of this house being a to all nations, the temple is destroyed, and again, Israel is taken captive. Long story short, Israel is eventually released. They rebuild Jerusalem. They rebuild a temple. It's not quite as great as the first one, but they rebuild a temple nonetheless. And like the first one, they pray, they offer it to the Lord, they consecrate this temple to be a house to be the house of God. Ezra chapter 3. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. This is how we were supposed to do it at the first one. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Have you heard this praise before? For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. The ones who had seen the house before are at the consecration again, and they they see it, they've heard of the first dedication. And at this one, it's okay that the temple maybe isn't as beautiful as the first one before, but the more important question is this time, where's the glory? Where's the fire? Where's the wind? Where's the presence? Why can we all still stand? Where is he? They had built a new temple, but without the glory of the Lord, it was just another building. Hundreds of more years pass, and this is the temple situation when Jesus comes on the scene. And as you read the story of Jesus, one of the things that you notice and hopefully we'll see with this lens on is a new temple narrative begins to unfold. Beginning at Jesus' baptism. Jesus is baptized and the heavens open. The Spirit of God comes and descends on this man. The Father speaks, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. God is on the earth. Along the way, Jesus enters the temple and he tells them, destroy this temple 
And in three days, I will raise it up. A few short years later on Calvary, Jesus breathes his last breath. And the veil that is in the temple that blocked access to the Holy of Holies, which was supposed to be the very seat of God, it is torn in two and rent open. And 53 days later in an upper room, Jesus' followers are praying, not knowing exactly what to do, but holding on to the hope that in the middle of all that they don't understand, surely the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. They're praying and holding on to this hope and suddenly there is a sound. A mighty sound, a rushing wind, tongues of flaming fire. The Spirit of God comes and nations begin to hear of the glory of God. At Pentecost, God commissioned and consecrated his new temple. Not by taking up residence in buildings made by human hands, but by taking up residence in humans born again by his very own Spirit. God is now in taking up residence on the earth again. And the Bible continues and concludes in Revelation 21, pointing our gaze to the future yet again, to the completion of this redemption of all things. We are told of a new heavens. We are told of a new earth. We are told of a new holy city, but no temple. Instead, John the Revelator tells us, and I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Whether us being God's temple means a lot to us or not, us being God's temple means a lot to God. We, the church, are not just a gathering of people. We aren't an event organization or a social club. We are his temple. As we read at the beginning, the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being our cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What do we do with this? I want to propose some things we need to be thinking about and responding to as we walk away this morning from this truth that we are his temple. First, I want you to understand that this is why we always say Jesus is the target audience of church. Jesus is the target audience of his church. His house exists for him first. He is our first aim. He is our first orientation. He is the honored guest in his own house. 
And if we, the church, do not have him here with us, then it doesn't matter if you or me or anyone else is here. This is why we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. We must be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I know that that language can be kind of loaded with experiences and denominations and all that stuff, but let's narrow in. Let's stay focused here. We don't need to be filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is we don't need that just so we can have encounters, though I want you to have encounters like we sang earlier. I want a real encounter, but it's not for the sake of an encounter. We need to be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, not just so you can speak in tongues, though I want you to speak in tongues, not just so you can have spiritual gifts, though we must eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, not just so that we can feel something or fall on the floor and become part of an elite church club. We need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled by the Holy Spirit, so that we can love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need God to rend the heavens, which he did. And we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that our hearts change, so that we love what he loves, so that we hate what he hates. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit for our souls to be changed and restored. They need to be restored by the good shepherd. We need to become unyoked from sin and death and yoked to Jesus Christ so that we can go his way for his will at his pace. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that our minds are transformed. So that we can set our minds on the things of the Spirit, which is life and peace, instead of setting our minds on the things of the flesh, which are death. We've got to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, so that our strength is renewed as we live our lives waiting on Him. And we boast in our weaknesses so that the very power of Christ can rest on us. He's the target audience. This place, this people exists first to be His residence. We are his house. We are his church. Here to do his will. To be part of his kingdom. And to be filled with his glory for his glory. We must understand, church, that we first exist for Jesus. Secondly, we exist for each other. We exist for the church. The second priority of the church's existence is the church. To build each other up as members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being our cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus is building his church. And we are here first for his purposes. And his purpose is to build the church. So that's the second reason we're here. And then thirdly, we exist to be ambassadors for Christ. We first exist for Jesus because if we don't have him, it doesn't matter if you're here. We exist for each other to build each other up because if we aren't being built up with Christ Jesus, the cornerstone, it doesn't matter if anybody else comes here. 
But when we do these two things, when we know the light of the world and we are the light of the world, we can be ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore the world, be reconciled to God. He's here. He's with us. Come, be reconciled to God. The fact that the church is God's temple emphasizes the truth that the church is holy. We are to be holy. Being holy isn't a statement about behavior. It's a statement about status. When something is holy, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's perfect. It means that it's set apart. It means it's designated. The temple wasn't holy because it was a perfect building. It was holy because it belonged to God. The cups and the plates and the tables and the altars and the curtains, they weren't holy because they were perfect. They were holy because they were designated for God. We are to be holy. We are to be holy as he is holy. Not because we are a perfect organization filled with perfect people who do everything perfectly all the time. We are to be holy because we belong to God. We are his possession. And we are his temple. So I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of this calling. I urge you this morning, be holy. What do you do walking out of here? Be holy. Yeah, but what do I do? Repent. Turn. Turn away. Turn away from everything else. Is there any where in your life where you're the target audience of your own life? Are you living for yourself? Are you living first for other people? Are you the target audience of your church? Are you the target audience of the breath that you take? Or is it Jesus? For those of us who don't do this perfectly, the call this morning is repent. Say, come, Holy Spirit, open my eyes, convict me with your gracious mercy. Show me, show me where I'm not living holy as you've made me holy and give me power to turn and come to the Lord. The invitation this morning, come. Come to the Lord Jesus. We've been talking all year about bringing God another jar. Confess whatever it is that the Lord convicts you of and come to him empty. Come to him empty. Consecrate yourself to him. Offer this empty building to the Lord and say, oh God, fill me with your glory. Come and fill me with your glory. Would you stand as we finish our time this morning? Our prayer team is going to come up to the front. If you need prayer for anything, if there's any way you need to respond, please don't leave church this morning without getting the prayer that you need. If there's anything you need to confess of, turn from, come do it with a brother and sister because we are being built together. There's no judgment. There's no sense judging the person who's God's building with you, right? <laughs> Consecrate yourself to the Lord today. Wherever you're hungry, be satisfied by his presence. Wherever you're not hungry, consecrate it to the Lord and say, oh God, send your fire. Lord Jesus, would you come?
Would you come and consecrate us to you? Lead us into repentance. Set us apart for your glory. We love you. We turn our attention and our affection and our aim towards you this morning. In the beautiful name of Jesus, let's worship.